HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. And welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. It's a beautiful Tuesday, 3 p.m. You must be listening to the food scene. Today's guests, a whole bunch of them, actually. Um, we have Brendan and Melissa Vaughn, authors of the New Brooklyn Cookbook, who uh, I selfishly know very well, having been the photographer of the New Brooklyn Cookbook. Cassie Jones, their editor, um, publishing house HarperCollins, William Morrow, and her lovely assistant, Jessica DiPitato. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Thank well, you for having us. <laughs> hey, Brendan, you there? We got him calling. Here. Excellent. Brendan actually uh, works for GQ Magazine, and they're closing an issue at the moment, but luckily we have him uh, as a call-in today. Um, they wouldn't let me out. <laughs> they wouldn't let him out. Well, you know what's out? The New Brooklyn Cookbook. After a year, it felt like labor. Not that I've ever had a yeah, child. Doesn't but, uh, feel exactly no, like labor. No, no, not completely. <laughs> but it was about six to uh, nine months of shooting this book on my end, and even longer of constructing this book on Brendan and Melissa's. And let's start from the beginning. Where did you come to this idea? Actually, um, I was walking in the park with a very good friend who um, is a documentarian and just has a million ideas a minute. And I sort of said, I need a project. I need to do something. <laughs> and she said, how about a restaurant cookbook about Brooklyn? And I said, when ding, she, ding, and ding. she named a bunch of restaurants. And I was like, yeah, this is sounding good. She's like, better yet, a, rest, a book about the scene in Brooklyn. And I thought, okay, this is kind of a good idea. I took it home to Brendan, pitched it to him, thought it was a good idea. That night, we saw f- friends of ours that are agents at a party. And we pitched it to them, and everyone loved the idea immediately, and off we went. Met Cassie a month and a half later. <laughs> it happened quickly. And this happened, what, about two years ago? This happened um, at the, uh, the... The idea was conceived, in, uh, I guess, at the end of February 
2009. And um, by the middle of April, we were on our way for force. Brendan, had you eaten at a lot of these restaurants? Yeah, uh, we'd eaten. Uh, we'd eaten at. I would say, gosh, I mean, from the from the beginning, Melissa. You know, like before we really started. I mean, probably at least half. I would say that we'd we'd already eaten that, maybe more. Um, and then, of course, through the process of doing the book, we wound up eating at all of them. Uh, you know, a bunch of times. Yeah. Um, some of them we've eaten at. I mean, some of the restaurants that we've been going to for years. I mean, we've eaten at. You know, dozens of times. Um, so, so it ranges, but uh, but yeah, I would say probably about half from the beginning. Yeah, it's it's actually funny. People keep on asking me, like, "Oh, how many of the restaurants have you been in?" And I'm right. like, <laughs> um, I, "Actually, all of them, because I photograph <laughs> right. them." But, uh, <laughs> right, right. Um, but y- you two uh, used to live in Manhattan prior to moving to Brooklyn. We did. Yep. Um, and we lived in neighborhoods where, you know, there was really wonderful food. I mean, we lived in Soho. We lived in the West Village. We lived on 22nd and Park, right? Yeah, right um, next to Bolo, right down, between yeah. like Bolo and... Um, Tamarind. Yeah, Tamarind, like an Indian <laughs> place. And then Beppe was there with the famous fried chicken. And not Beppe. Um, oh, it is Beppe, yeah, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, across the... Cesare, Cesare restaurant, yeah. Um, yeah, so we were like on this restaurant, you know. Oh, and then the other one at the end of the at the end that changed constantly that was incredibly annoying, commune. It was commune for a while. Then commune, it was the Rocco ro- place where they did yeah. the uh, the reality the show. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember second, what yeah. that was. And then yeah, so wasn't there like, a Charlie Palmer little spot across the street from us? Yes, that that little weird place right across the street from our apartment on Twenty Second. That used to be like the place where the chefs would go after they got off. It was open till like four. Yeah. And Charlie opened it almost exclusively for that reason to have like a post a post shift chef hangout place. Uh, it was called was it called like Edison or something like that? Yeah, it had great bulbs in the window. I remember. Yeah. See, but it, we- and it was- see, it's really fun to actually listen to you guys affectionately label rail off all these Manhattan restaurants. Do you feel that same way about Brooklyn now? And not just after the cookbook, but did you feel that way when this idea was uh, breached? Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's funny because people will ask us now about where to eat in Manhattan. And I'm like, (laughs) I have no idea. It's like I will rattle off all these restaurants that we used to eat at, you know, before we came here because we really became Brooklyn centric. Yeah. And um, really found that we everything we wanted for the most part um, food wise was here. And so, yes, we were, I mean, we made this book because we're passionate about the food here and the scene and the community and the rest, everything about it. So, for sure. Yeah. And Cassie, are you a Brooklynite? I lived in Brooklyn from 1992 to 2005. And I had a little corner of my soul that missed Brooklyn. So when I got this proposal, I got kind of excited and I thought it'd be a way to revisit those days. Yeah. And how has it changed since you left in 2005? Uh, well, gosh, I mean, it's changed a lot since 1992, for sure. Um, it's just, you know, just gotten amazing and better. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it does feel like new Brooklyn. It, it wasn't, you know, there was that old Brooklyn sense of food and cuisine and restaurants. Mm-hmm. And then where did it turn the corner? I mean, I know because I've read the book and been part of this, but it's interesting to see 1998, uh, Aldi La, Marlowe and Sons, um, which if you get the book... Brendan and Melissa did an amazing thing where they actually set it up chronologically. So you're reading it as, you know, a storyline rather than just, you know, recipes, text, blah, blah, blah. Um, but in 1998, everything changed. Now, Brendan, do you feel like everything changed? Or do you feel like uh, um, 
those two restaurants were autonomous, established themselves, and just laid groundwork for others. I feel like it's certainly a lot more clear in hindsight that this was like the moment that everything changed. Certainly nobody had, it's not like that was con- anybody was conscious of that at, at, at that moment. I mean, things had already started to change. I mean, you had Kuchina on Fifth Avenue that was there when Cassie was living in Brooklyn back in 92 and that, like, that, that whole period, I think. I don't know when Kuchina opened up, but I know that it was around. I think 1990, the, actually. Yeah, like the yeah. early 90s into like the mid and into, you know, at some point in the late 90s, I believe, or maybe even a little bit after that, it wound up closing. Uh, you know, if Kachina was still around, it would have created, uh, you know, our, our timeline wouldn't have been as tidy, you know, because we would have had to have account, accounted for that, and, and, and we certainly wish it was still around, because we, we, we like that restaurant very much, and used to go there all the Sudo time. Sudo is but. back, actually. Michael, you is has opened up Fornino in the same space that was, you know, right. uh, yeah, yeah same owner, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, I mean, the, the, the restaurant, you know, was, was a, bit, a, a bit ahead of its time, and there was also a restaurant in Williamsburg called Osnant's Dish, which uh, was, was, I don't know if it was co-founded by him, but it was, it was, the kitchen was, was helmed by um, the guy that became the founding chef of Rosewater. Um, so Osnant's so Dish was another restaurant that was, that was before either Aldi Law or Diner that was doing the kind of food and sort of like, you know, really just being sort of creative and, and ambitious about what was coming out of the kitchen. Um, but really, I mean, Aldi Law and Diner, which opened a month apart, um, or, you know, about somewhere between a month and two months apart in, in the end of 1998, definitely as we started to study, you know, what we were going to write this book about and, and just take our anecdotal sort of sense of, of how things had developed and then, you know, dig much deeper and like, okay, ask ourselves, is this in fact where it started? It really, I think it's very true, compelling, convincing argument to be made that Aldi Law was the start of what we now think of as like the new Brooklyn restaurant scene. Yeah, and um, they couldn't be more different, correct? Right, and those two restaurants are very, very different. I mean, Aldi Law's menu does not change all that often. It's it's a it's a very um, kind of it's 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 repertoire like it's you know it's it's certainly beautifully done and and creatively done, but it's also from a culinary tradition that is you know that goes back a very long way. Just the Venetian you know sort of northeastern Italian trattoria cooking. Um, Whereas Diner was a um, you know early on in the in the farm to table movement, very focused on you know on on showcasing the ingredients, you know not not you know cooking the food, definitely applying some culinary energy to it, but also letting the ingredients really just kind of shine for what they were, um, and focused on you know sustainable agriculture and local produce and all those things that became so important to the larger Brooklyn restaurant scene as well as the restaurant scenes that that you know that that were built on those philosophies and other other places all around the country. Yeah. So you know they were very different, but what they both did was showed at that moment in time, and no one had done it yet. You know that you could you could do this kind of a restaurant. It could be small and idiosyncratic and personal and very much a passion of the chefs. Um, but you could you could fill up the dining room every night with really, really committed and, 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 and equally passionate diners who were willing to pay the prices for the food. Not that the food was expensive relative to Manhattan, but it was expensive for Brooklyn. Um, and so, and just demonstrating that this demographic was there to fill these dining rooms every night. Yeah, and I mean, we're at a prime example right now, taping at Roberta's, um, right. that it m- might have been the perfect bookend in combining those two ideas of Aldi La and Marlowe and Sons in regionality and local sustainable farm to table and actually incorporating both into this kind of oasis in the middle of, you know, uh, Bushwick. Right, right. 
So uh, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it was weird. It wasn't until I actually had the book in front of me and you know started flipping through the pages and saw the progression that you actually do see a progression. It wasn't just uh, these Brink restaurants or these uh, uh, autonomous things happening. There, there was a collection. There was a vibe. There was a zeitgeist going on. So yeah, I mean it. It's not just a, a fleeting thing. Um, no, particularly, I think particularly in as time went on a little bit, I mean, the first four in the book. Um, now, Diner, Diner, we, we keep talking about Diner. Diner's actually not in our book as a section. Um, in spirit, because though. They, they published Diner Journal. It's certainly there in spirit, and Marlowe and Sons is in, is in the book, you know, with a write-up and a recipe and, and all that. So, um, But, you know, when you look at those first four that we, that we name-check, like as the, as the kind of the beginning of the... Uh, of you know this type of of restaurant in Brooklyn, it's Aldi Law, Diner, Saul, Grocery, um, and hang on, hang on, hang on. What's the <laughs> next one after that? Um, so yeah, and Rosewater. Um, I think that those five restaurants um, are all pretty different from each other. I mean, you've got like we already talked about Aldi Law and Diner. Then you've got the Grocery and Saul, which are much more fine, like what you would think of as sort of more typical fine dining restaurants. Well, they, they, um, they were Zagat's survey. Yeah, there's, there's Zagat's. These are, you know, these are nowadays, you know, places where, you know, the entrees are twenty nine thirty. Like it's, it's the, the, the number of, you know, ingredients in a dish is a bit higher than some of the other, most of the other restaurants in the book. It's just done with a little bit more kind of big city, you know, uh, oat cuisine sort of flair, you know, flair to it and, 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 and French technique and all, and all that. And then you had Rosewater, which was, which was really focused on, on the local seasonal sustainable with, with a kind of a, um, North African bent to the flavor profile, you know. So, um, so you had like these five very different restaurants. As time went on, though, things really did kind of like coalesce around much more, much more directly around the um, local seasonal sustainable farm to table movement, and that really became the kind of center of gravity for for. Uh, it got to the point where you know virtually every new restaurant in Brooklyn would emphasize this, you know, and and and, and again that picked up a national trend, but was concentrated, I think, in, in Brooklyn. Yeah, and I mean it pinged back and forth from regional cooking like Convivium and Lacanda, uh, Convivium Osteria and Lacanda Vignoli, uh, you know, doing Italian, and then um, e- even Aliseo. But then you know right. other restaurants influenced like Egg was influenced by the South. Uh, um, Lunetto was another Italian restaurant. Palo Santo was Pan Latin. Uh, Five Leaves had an Australian tint to them. Right. Chair number four with barbecue. So, I mean, they all had different ideas of where they were bringing their cuisine from, but there was an overall kind of essence of how they were trying to cook that product and plate that dish. Yeah, it was all filtered. Sorry, go ahead. No, finish your thought. No, I'm done. <laughs> um, I would also say that one of the one of the other characteristics about Aldi La that you see in some of the other restaurants as well is that Anna was cooking in the city at night. Her husband was around during the day. They never saw each other. They were living in this neighborhood where they um, felt like there was a there was a you know this type of cuisine, this level of cuisine was lacking, and they said we want to see more each other more. Let's pull our energy and let's pull our talents and you know, whatever resources we have, <laughs> and let's go for it. And, you know, they've been running the restaurant as a couple ever since then. And, you know, there are other examples of restaurants like that in our book, like The Good Fork, um, James, um, Deborah and Brian. Um, beer table. They live above yeah. the, yeah, beer table. Deborah and Brian live above the restaurant.
restaurant at James, um, beer table uh, owned by a couple, um, you know, people that that felt like they had they done their their frannies. duty yeah. frannies <laughs> clearly they done their they done their their years in the city and they were coming back to sort of bring it home to their own communities yeah. and that's very strong. You know, separate. You know, it's not so separate from the food, but it's another element that we see a lot in these restaurants. Well, Brendan, Melissa, when you moved from Manhattan, did you move to Brooklyn for quality of life? I mean, was this a quality of life cookbook? Uh, aside from it just being, you know, about the cuisine of the borough. Uh, well, we moved. I mean, we definitely moved to Brooklyn, like so many people do, to get more space and and to you know try to get some maybe a little bit of outdoor space that we could call our own in the backyard and and you know those those very sort of you know, time-honored reasons for moving to Brooklyn. Those those were our reasons. I can't honestly say that we, you know, realized at the time or that it was a factor that there was going to be great food there. But we sort of, I think, like like a lot of people who moved from Manhattan to Brooklyn uh, during that period of time, back in the late 90s, early early aughts, was, you know, well, you know, we'll, we'll have great takeout and stuff, but, you know, for, for like a higher-end meal, we'll probably just need to be getting back on the train and coming into the city, and, and that turned out to be very wrong, unfortunately, for, for us and for everybody else who lives who lives here. But, you know, we moved in May of 2002. It was definitely kind of underway by then, and we'd he- certainly heard of the grocery and Saul and Aldi La and, you know, Aldi Diner and all these places, but it really wasn't until we'd been living there for a few years that all of a sudden we were like, damn, like, there's just some incredible stuff going on out here, and it's a real... It went from being like a smattering of great restaurants that were sort of distinct from each other to like much more of a palpable sense that like this is a community that is aware of itself, you know, that's like aware of the other things that are going on, you know. Now, actually, I got a question for Cassie about the type of cookbook this is, because it is a community driven and not just like a CSA. It's, it's It's a collaborative effort of. 31 distinct locations. Mm-hmm. We had, I believe, 10 producers, purveyors in it as well. So 41 uh, different people, influences. How often do cookbooks like this get published? Or is it usually a single entity, celebrity chef, single idea? It is more often single entity. And the thing that I really appreciate about what Melissa especially did on this is it's a cohesive book. I mean, recipes coming in from all sorts of different sources often are just, they're not of a piece. They're like very restaurant focused. They come in kind of all different shapes and ways. And Melissa really made a very cohesive kind of uh, cook-oriented, home cook-oriented book out of it, which I really appreciate. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting to note that she did bring the restaurant into the home kitchen, um, but people still clamor. Like, we went to Franny's, and obviously a lot of people think of pizza, or we go to Char 4, and a lot of people think barbecue, but who has a 900 degrees pizza oven, and who has, you know, a box smoker to be able to pull these things off? So, Melissa really had to think about what would translate uh, uh, as food rather than as, you know, restaurant as a whole. Um, were there a couple dishes in this book that were, you know, pushed aside because they wouldn't work, or...? Um. Uh, dishes, not as much dishes. I mean, there were there were one or two restaurants that we really would have loved, but pizza we felt was separate. Yeah, you know, pizza we felt um, really is almost its own book, especially in Brooklyn. New pizza, old pizza, but and you know, very much agree with you. You know, if you don't have that type of an oven, you're not going to get the same. Um, the same level of of flavor and quality, and therefore, because we were trying to. Uh, make recipes that were going to be as close to the restaurant version as possible, pizza wasn't going to work. There were a couple of restaurants that we really wanted to include, but because of the food they make, like a barbecue, you know, 
like Fete Sao. We yeah. love, you know, we really we talked to them about it too, and we were going to end up with a couple of salad dishes, and we just didn't feel like that was going to, you know, um, bring out the essence of what they were doing there. So it was. I, I can't remember right now. I don't think there were too many recipes that we got that we tried that we sort of said, eh, yeah. this isn't going to work. We I, we sort of had a sense, yeah, of uh, what was going to be right in I remember, the home kitchen. I, what was great is uh, uh, Melissa was on most of the shoots with me. Uh, Dory, her daughter, also came on a couple, but that we were able to brainstorm and look at things on the fly. Um, and this is two-part, because Cassie, I was going to ask you whether or not that happens often, or do you get a set of recipes and just ready to go? Or, um, you know, having seen a couple recipes on site, like uh, Franny's Panna Cotta, I keep on pulling as an example, yeah. originally had Saba on it, but not many people have that in pantry or willing to pay 20 30 bucks a bottle for a single recipe. Um, how did you come to getting this collection of recipes in? Mm, you're talking to me. For both, yeah. Well, you know, actually what originally happened was I sort of opened up the door to all the restaurants and said, submit whatever recipes you want to submit. You know, here, it's all yours. Whatever makes you happy, whatever you want, you know, you're excited about, whatever you feel like represents the restaurant the best. And, um, you know, the handful that I got... Um, I, I slowly realized I was not going to have a cohesive, yeah. ba- well-balanced uh, collection Cassie, of recipes. Uh, Cassie, did you try to shut those floodgates a little bit and streamline it? <laughs> no, I think, I mean, part of when you're acquiring a cookbook, cookbook or any book is you're sort of, are you, I was acquiring a book where I trusted their taste. So by the time it got to me, I mean, it had the normal amount of editing, but I really didn't make any kind of major changes like that yeah you know that was i think part of the learning curve of putting together a book like this for us and it didn't take long to realize that the it wasn't even floodgates really because the chefs wanted more guidance they wanted more you know in a conversation and so um that's when i sort of i backed into it i sort of figured out what dishes i wanted in the book and then i went to the chef's yeah, and I and I knew what each restaurant and each chef was really wonderful at, and I knew what the specialty dishes were and the signature dishes, and and then we sort of created um, an, our our dream table of contents ar- uh, around what we knew, and then we went in and had a conversation with every owner and every chef, and we worked through all the recipes, and um, and that's how we got it to where it was. But that was definitely a, you know a month of. Of sort of waiting to see hmm, what's going to come today, and stuff yeah. just it just wasn't flowing the way I had hoped. So. And, and, and Brendan, um, Brendan worked more on the interview side. Melissa working on the recipe side. Did you find that same kind of collaborative effort of the chefs wanting to give a certain information, or did you have to really taper what they were trying to say and trying to give to you? Well, I mean, I just, I conducted, you know, I mean, I've, I've done, you know, millions of interviews over my career, um, you know, with just all kinds of different subjects. And, um, you know, I treated the, these interviews in a, in a kind of a journalistic way, you know, where I wanted to just learn everything I could about, about them and the restaurants and, and then, you know, package the information in, a, you know, in a, in a um, tell the story of the restaurant and tell the story of the people behind it, um, you know, and kind of give you the flavor of, of what it's like to be there. Um, 
And so, I mean, they were all very, you know, well, maybe not every single one. <laughs> Most of them were all, you know, like very kind of giving of their time and and uh, and 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 their stories, you know, in order to make that work. I mean, I, my, I had, you know, I had far bigger problems with like knowing, you know, like they're sort of fitting all the great stuff that I had into, you know, relatively short amount of text to each restaurant um, than say, you know, feeling like I didn't have enough, you know. Yeah. What was it like a five? Hundred two thousand word lead. Yeah, I mean, it was about. It would def- I mean, thousand was. None of them are that long. Um, some of them are. I mean, the Q and A's with the with the with the producers. You know, we have ten uh, Q and A's with some of the artisanal food producers in Brooklyn. such as like Six Point Craft Ales, uh, uh, Wheelhouse Pickles. Yeah, Wheelhouse Pickles, Mass Brothers Chocolate, uh, Hot Bread Kitchen, uh, Jessamine Waldman at Hot Bread Kitchen, um, Annie Novak from Eagle Street Rooftop Farms. Um, we had uh, the Salvatore Ricotta, you know, Betsy and Rachel from that. I mean, so, you know, a, a range of, I mean, we didn't duplicate any product categories. So, you know, one pickler, one brewer, one chocolate maker, you know, even though, as we all know, there's, there's, there's it seems like, you know, there's more and more people in each of these categories all yeah. the time as more and more artisans come out here and, and make a go of it. But we, we did the producers in a more kind of a, you know, just as a sample um, of the type of folks that are out here doing this. Um, those are all about a thousand words, but the restaurant write-ups are really, you know, probably about five to six hundred. Um, and then each and each recipe head note that, you know, you tell the story of the dish and give a little bit of uh, information or service information about, you know, tips for cooking and so on. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a quick little break. There's so much more to talk about. Uh, maybe discuss some of the dishes themselves, some of the chef's stories, some of the actual, um, you know, written word that Brendan drew out of these restaurants. But we're going to take a quick little break. You've been listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkow. Welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with uh, the new Brooklyn cookbook clan. Uh, Melissa, Brendan Vaughn, authors, husband, wife, uh, Cassie Jones, their editor, and Jessica DiPotato, her wonderful assistant at HarperCollins, William Morrow, who put the book out. Um, Wanted to kind of get into some of the chef stories, recipes, food, you know, make, make people salivate a little bit for this book because it, it's still hard, um, even with how Brendan's explained it, to define the exact food of Brooklyn. Um, a lot of people think there's actually another book uh, called The Brooklyn Cookbook, for example, that's all egg creams and, you know, Sephardic Jewish delicacies, appetizing stores, um, pizza, bagels, but... There's a lot more 
there's not even that in our cookbook. There's a lot more to this borough than just those old standards. Um, let's pull out a couple of those favorite dishes. I mean, was there any dish that necessarily spawned the idea of the cookbook as well? I mean, when you had that initial discussion with your friend and she said, oh, you should do this restaurant, this restaurant, was it, you know, Marlowe and Sons has a famous brick chicken. Are, were there any of those other recipes that you were hoping to get and did get in or maybe even didn't get in? Um, I would say that Aldi La is, was the first restaurant we all came up with. It's, we, we live in Park Slope. It's one of our favorites and um, we frequent it often. And we knew, you know, we knew that it, along with a lot of the other restaurants, did not have their own cookbooks. So um, I think everything at Aldi La sort of mm-hmm. would have been great to yeah. have in a book. <laughs> uh, maybe Anna will someday do her own book. Um, definitely the food at Marlowe and Diner. Um, I wouldn't say there was one dish in particular, although the chick- brick chicken is great, you know, yeah. amazing. Um, I'm trying to think if there was any one particular dish. Because, I mean, like we were saying before, that's what was so interesting about char number four that we got, which is an amazing salad, but a green beans with mint pesto. No bacon. Right. <laughs> no meat in it. Right. But our right. soup has our soup has bacon. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. it's visible and, you know, you, it's not just an, an essence of it. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, we did we did want to get that that in there as yeah. best as we could. But like the good fork uh, gave us that wonderful kimchi rice. Yeah, and and that is what that is their signature dish, along with dumplings, which we did not put in. Um, but I felt like the steak and eggs was a fantastic example of accessible food with a twist from the chef and uh, you know and a, a nod to her heritage. Um, so he is Korean. Um, and um, I felt like it was also recognizable to people. It was going to be a dish that had immense flavor but could easily be translated for the home cook. Yeah. So, you know, in that case, um, I went right for the signature dish. Yeah. Um, for sure. You know, in some other places, we, we, we had some surprises. I feel like in, uh, at the General Green, we put in a tofu dish with spicy, you know, very spicy um, Szechuan chili oh, yeah. flavors. It was like and a riff on uh, mapa tofu. E- yeah. Exactly. And, um, you know, if, if you're looking for your typical food from there, you're not looking for that dish, but it is a knockout of a dish. It's like one of the best vegetarian dishes we've ever had. So, you know, we tried to be, um, we tried to pull out some surprises as well as some some signature dishes. Yeah, and um, I'm going to make Jessica talk. <laughs> um, I, it, it was it was great to see Jessica and a whole bunch of other people at uh, talk. We had a book court last week, um, but it was only what maybe a third time in Brooklyn. You said fourth, I think. Fourth, fourth time in Brooklyn. Have you been to any of the restaurants in the book? No, I have not. I'm really looking forward to going though. Especially, yeah. um, I feel like I've lived in Brooklyn vicariously through this book. Yeah, Jessica uh, pretty much was the siphon for all the images, recipes, and stuff coming in, and uh, was a tremendous filter and helping kind of organizing the chaos that we got ourselves into. Um, organized chaos, that is. Controlled chaos. Yeah, controlled chaos, because it did absolutely come together. But were there any dishes, without ever having tasted them, that you saw and said, holy crap, I want to go there and eat that? The uh, steak and eggs, I think. It's a great dish. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's from yeah. the Good Fork. Yeah. 
Um, which also seems very achievable as a dish, so maybe I'll just make it for myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what the great balance about this book is that there are ones where you're like, oh, I'm going to go and eat that at that restaurant, or I'm going to go and have this now, and then maybe do a contrast compared later, uh, that you have the advantage of this both being a roadmap to Brooklyn, you know, a guide, a tour guide, as well as a, a convenient, handy thing to then replicate uh, a lot of these tastes yourselves. Um, Absolutely. There's also, you know, I feel like there are some recipes where people can um, be creative. They can jump off from there, from where we've, you know, what we've given them. But I know that there are elements of recipes that some people have been making, maybe not the entire dish, but like there's an aioli in there, an avocado aioli from Rosewater that um, I know that somebody made the other night and put it over tuna instead of put it over swordfish so i mean there are there are a lot of ways to cook from this book and you know if you want to make something in an hour you can do that with this book if you want to cook all afternoon and do something a little more adventurous and you know stuff a squid hey you can do that too (laughs) you know so it's like there's there's there really is i mean you can cook for four days marinate and you know and cure and do whatever you like wait is that the capstone well the capstone Time you do overnight, yeah. the, which is actually the, from Roberta's yep, here, yeah. and the um, and the salmon at Applewood, um, you cure for a couple, you know, I think for overnight or a couple of days, um, but then you can make you know soft serve frozen yogurt in a matter of an hour and a half. Yeah, so there's it's really um, a nice spectrum of of um, levels of yeah. You know what experience. I realized, which is kind of awesome, is that the, this can actually happen that you can in a sense, go out to eat at multiple restaurants in one night by creating a meal of all these recipes and then make leftover, you know, have leftovers and then make new dishes with like a little bit of applewood here, a little bit of, you know, good (laughs) fork here. And I'm I'm just waiting to see how that creates an even bigger Brooklyn melting pot. Clever. You have to (laughs) let us know about that. (laughs) Haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Um, Actually, I want to talk a little bit more about the uh, format of the book because as I was saying before this is like a road map a, a guide uh, the idea of putting the actual map on the inside well on the cover and on the inside cover um, Cassie why did that come about well on, on the cover specifically we had lots and lots of discussions about possible food photography to put on it on the cover because it's so often so appealing to people but we really wanted the book to be an overview of Brooklyn as a whole and not be featuring sort of say one restaurant's dish over another's. So that's kind of where we started and then we just really liked the colors and the palette actually Melissa found online, um, which was pretty cool. Yeah. So I mean it was it, it was logistical in a it sense. It was it was well, you know, it, a lot of factors went into it and then the map in the inside, we really wanted people to be able to I mean it's a beautiful book and you could have it on your coffee yeah. table, but we wanted people to be able to carry it around and use it and, you know, kind of you could really walk your way around. Yeah. Well, it'd be a long walk, but you could. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at the same time, uh, I found myself back and forth on the G, like throughout this whole trip, just back and forth and back and forth. And l- logistically trying to photograph, you know, 31 restaurants, 10 producers, um, it came to a point where there was a caveat where I said, can I just walk in and start shooting because I can't physically uh, schedule, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think I was trying to count the number of emails and exchanges and phone calls that I did and the number of hours that I put into this book. And I just stopped. I'm just like, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put it as an, you know, an infinity symbol and just let it roll because got to get this done. Right. And there's no other way. We should make it clear that we shot all the food. In all of the restaurants. So yeah. every dish, there was no studio, there was no 
stock. There was no um, food stylist. Food stylist and um, prop stylist. That was you and me and the the chef in the kitchen. And um, you know, we shot it on their tables in their window in natural light. So we were in all thirty-one restaurants shooting the food right out of the kitchen. And that's that was only one visit. Then we had to go back for. Interior shots and exterior shots, and then Brendan was there doing interviews. So, th- so I know the sometimes we hit him with the trifecta. Time. Yeah, occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think once at Lakanda. Yeah. The three of us were there at once, and we took care of it all. But yeah. Beyond that, you know, the chefs gave a tremendous amount of their time, um, and they were very happy to have you just drop in. Yeah. Yeah. So that was great. I, I was very happy to do that. Um, the other side, because Lacana was actually the one of the few restaurants that uh, Melissa, Brendan, and I all happened to be at at the same time. Brendan, what were some of the some of the stories that uh, you got that either weren't published or maybe even got about Melissa and I uh, while you were interviewing the chefs uh, aside? Oh man, um, gosh, I'll have to, I, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to come up with anything all that good off the top of my head for that one. Good stories that I didn't publish. Um, I definitely had a long and fairly boozy night with Colin Devlin at Dressler, <laughs> um, where we sat and we talked and we ate and we drank and we talked and ate and drank a little bit more. Colin is a like an old school, um, kind of you know a little bit of a of a you know I don't know he's just like an Irish barman in a way you know and, and a very modern version of it and he has these you know great visions for these. Very cool, hip, modern restaurants, Dumont Dressler, Dumont Burger, um, you know, and, uh, and some other projects that he's got cooking. But um, he definitely had some, he had opinions about um, about some other members of the of the scene, both in his neighborhood uh, yeah. and beyond. And, you know, he, he, was, he was very entertaining on that front, but that was all off the record, and we should probably keep it that way. <laughs> so there won't be, like, a secondary uh, book, a subsidiary that has all the, the gossip and the, the... All the cutting room stuff? No, yeah. No, no, no. There's plenty of it. I mean, you know how it is, like, in the restaurant world. Everybody's worked together, um, you know, um, and spent a lot of time together. <laughs> yeah, I think even in the middle of this book, too... Uh, uh, one chef moved to another restaurant and another chef moved to another restaurant. So we actually saw them in places where they didn't you know, initially meet them at. Well, yeah, I mean, like Julie Farias. Okay, so look at Julie from General Green, right? So she was had been working like a, as a restaurant consultant in Vegas, like doing, you know, doing... I mean, she worked in New York for a while, but then she went out to Vegas and was working for... I can't remember who. One of the big Manhattan restaurant groups that have like a Vegas outpost and have you know different locations around the city, doing like menu consultation for them. And so she was like sitting, you know, on some like some generic Las Vegas hotel room, like trying to think up dishes for this big restaurant group. And you know, she had, she she was friends already with with Nick Morgenstern, who owned the General Green, and they they would talk. And Julie finally was like, I got to get out of here. So she comes back to New York. She. By my own count, and I'm sure I don't even have all of them, yeah. she starts working at Beer Table, helping Justin at Beer Table get their kitchen off the ground. She cooks Justin and Trisha's wedding dinner, or maybe their rehearsal dinner, in, at, upstairs at EC, where they have the private 
event room up there. Um, then she goes to work for General Green and is doing that. So yeah. right there, she had touched three restaurants in a very short period of time, like during the time span that we were reporting the book. Yeah. So there's just a lot of that. I mean, there's just a lot. Everybody knows each other. Oh, and the other person she worked closely with was Matt Greco at Char 4, who she's tight with, and was like, you know, like Matt moved to New York and didn't know anybody except Julie Farias, you know, and they were they were friends from the beginning. So, you know, there's tons of these kinds of, of friendships that exist, and these these friendships yield interesting collaborations and partnerships you know shane welch has 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 given like you know there was a wart that he used am i saying that right word or wart w-o-r-t wart w-o-r-t yeah that like he used in one of john's one-off pickle creations and so there's a lot of that kind of collaboration that goes on and and uh you know it's just fun i mean everybody's you know everybody's kind of got their eye on their own on their own business of course but everybody's also really interested in and finding out what's going on with everybody else and, you know, coming up with cool ways to collaborate. Yeah, and I think that's what was so great about this book, too, is that you kind of knew that was happening, but you didn't really understand to what extent until you got in these restaurants and heard everybody's stories and, you know, saw everybody's food being influenced by each other. Um, yeah. It wasn't just necessarily saying, oh, well, I read this other cookbook or I had this, you know, uh, professor who taught me this technique. I mean, it was very open and sharing. It was kind of a six degrees of separation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one one place in Manhattan that that, that you can trace a lot of these people back to is Savoy. Um, so you know, uh, I'm trying to think off, off the top of my head. Andrew Feinberg and Fran and Francine from Franny's both worked at Savoy. Uh, Caroline Fidanza worked at Savoy from di- from the, the founding chef of Diner. Um, John. John uh, Tucker from Rosewater yep. was the GM there for like six years. Um, there were quite a few people who were influenced by that restaurant, which was, of course, one of the pioneers along with like Telepan and the city of, of Farm to Table. And, you know, the, so a lot of people that came through Savoy's Kitchen, you know, adopted those philosophies, you know, as their own and took them with them when they, when they moved on. And so there was a real direct line between Savoy and, and, and a bunch of the restaurants, uh, Franny's, Diner, Rosewater, and, and others in Brooklyn. So the new Brooklyn cookbook isn't so much about an exodus, but uh, an oasis. So it was a place for people to actually represent themselves and their ideas in restaurants without having to sit there and cook their asses off for, you know, 10, 20 years in Manhattan. You know? Yeah, or take on like, or take on like, you know, so many backers that they wind up with five percent of the restaurant for themselves, and ninety-five percent of it is owned by, you know, a, a consortium of dentists who just want to come in and have a good table. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's like these Brooklyn allowed them to have a bigger piece of themselves. They still needed backers, obviously some of them, some of them didn't. <laughs> but you know, it just it just. I guess you could say, well, it's a little riskier. It's Brooklyn, not Manhattan. We don't know for sure that this is going to work. This is more of the attitude back in the day, like in the early part of the period that we write about. Um, but, you know, it just it gave them so much more control over what they were doing, you know. And, and, and then in terms of quality of life, they could live, like most of us saying earlier, they lived upstairs or they lived down the street. You know, that just makes life so much so much. I mean, it integrates your work and your personal life, you know, in a way that, you know, is kind of all-consuming, but you're going to do that anyway if you're in your own business, exactly. so you might, you might as well be right next door. And know? let's talk about taking that to the nth degree. Um, I actually had Jacques Gaudier uh, Palo Santo on a prior show, but, I mean, planting your own garden on your roof, I mean. Right, right. That, that's kind of, I mean, Roberta's it here. It doesn't get having, any more local than that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, right. uh, having your own garden here, too, at Roberta's, um, to draw from right. um, is Brooklyn become you know becoming autonomous of Manhattan um, because I know on weekends sometimes I don't leave my neighborhood because I have everything I need and uh, places 
businesses that I'd rather frequent than go and explore in Manhattan. Yeah, definitely. I think you can easily spend. Um, you can easily spend. In fact, we do spend almost every weekend. You know, in in, in without having to go in, into the city, which for me is nice because I work there every day during the week. So I, I I prefer to kind of stay close to home. And uh, there's certainly more than enough to do um, without having to you know go anywhere else to, to have your basic uh, needs met. Also, you know, this so much of this scene is. Um in order to keep it going as strong as it is, is, you know, we're responsible for that. And if we, you know, the, the community behind these restaurants and all the other things about Brooklyn right now is so strong and the support is so much there that, that, you know, that's what makes it really unique and really special and really strong. And so, um, even if you have the desire to go to the city, yeah. better off stay here. Put your money back in, you know, in Brooklyn. Put your energy in Brooklyn. Give your feedback to the people that are, you know, making it happen because that's what they thrive on. And the more they know that you appreciate it, the more they're going to give. Yeah. Um. Actually, then let me touch really quickly on a, a recent article or, you know, a. Uh, some words traded with Jeffrey Steingarten, amongst other people, about boosterism in Brooklyn. And I just kind of want to shut it down um, in the sense that who cares? We're, we live in Brooklyn. We right. love Brooklyn and we support Brooklyn. So aside from that, uh, I'm not saying it's the best food I ever had, but it's where I want to go eat. Right. I mean, that, that's like, I think that the whole, like, objection to Brooklyn boosterism, which I think we can all admit that, you know, that, 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 those of us who live in the borough like have an interest in it being great, you know. And so, are we are we generous in our praise? Yeah, we are. But that that's because we're fans. We're celebrating this, you know. That isn't to say that we don't have a critical approach to to going out to eat in Brooklyn. We do certainly, you know. In the course of a meal, you have a few courses. Some of them hit on all cylinders. Some of them fall flat. That's just that's just dining out, you know. That happens anywhere. Um, we certainly are not arguing that, you know, the Brooklyn, the average Brooklyn chef in our book you know, is is in the same league as Thomas Keller. Like that's not what they're that's not what they're about. You know, what they're about is doing it their own way, you know, doing it according to their, their beliefs, um, being able to, you know, be in the kitchen, you know, most if not all nights, um, and, you know, turn out food that is, is for their community, for their customers that they recognize because they're in two, three nights a week, you know, you know, sometimes even more. Um and, and so that's really what it's about. It's not we're not saying that these are the quote best restaurants, you know, e- even in Brooklyn. I mean that we've that we've that we've ever been to. I mean, there's four um, Michelin. Well, there's actually five Michelin-starred restaurants now. The Brooklyn Fair got the two stars, but um, you know, a couple of those Michelin-starred restaurants aren't even in our book. Peter Luger's and uh, and River Cafe because they don't really fit the criteria. So it's not that they're the best restaurants. That they're is it? It's that they're the restaurants that. Put you know, like as we say on the cover, put Brooklyn on the culinary map, not yeah. just on the food map, but on the culinary map, and you know, um, comprise the scene as it as it exists today, which is of course constantly evolving, constantly changing, expanding into new neighborhoods, you know, new ideas, new cuisines. It's it's a it's a very organic and, and constantly yeah. changing. And thing. I believe uh, very willing to take the criticism to make it better too. So uh, yeah, yeah. I, you yeah. need the curmudgeon. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. You know, it's like that. That just hey, they care. You know, they, yeah. like that's that's you know that kind of a criticism is just it's it's a sign that you're relevant. You know, and that and that people have an opinion about it. So, excellent. And um, couple last things about the new Brooklyn Cookbook. Uh, first of all, I cannot believe it's out. 
Like after <laughs> after spending so much time with this and seeing it evolved and seeing this vision, um, having some physical, tangible thing is pretty awesome. So I'm also using this as an opportunity to thank Brendan and Melissa for bringing me on uh, to photograph it because Brooklyn is near and dear to my heart and uh, Cassie for, you know, really showing me the structure of a cookbook and answering any question I had because I was a newbie to the process and Jessica for bearing uh, that process as well when I came in with my little backup drive trying to upload photos and stuff. But um, I'm not saying I'm ever going to understand how a cookbook comes to be because it just seems like a blur now. But, right. Well, you'll do many more, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> I, I only hope, but uh, n- nothing as crazy and awesome as this one, I'm sure. Um, but I hope everyone actually goes out, checks out the new Brooklyn cookbook, uh, and not just because I did it and am excited about it, but because it is quite awe-inspiring and awesome, all in the same. And, you know, come support Brooklyn. Come support the borough as we get better and, you know, uh, we're happy to show what we have. And that's why this cookbook came to be. Um, so you can, you know, obviously check Amazon, Harper Collins, William Morrow. They're in print uh, Buy it in, lo- in your local bookstores too. Yeah, yeah. Book Court, which Book we just Court had to talk about. Right now has it, I think, at thirty percent off because we're on the bestseller list there, and I think we're number one on the nonfiction bestseller Heck list yeah. this week. Yeah, and so. yeah, we just we just got that Book Court uh, just posted their bestsellers for the last week, and we're number one hardcover nonfiction. So, uh, woohoo! <laughs> yeah, so go stock up for the holidays. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. All that's your it. friends and family. Now, um, what's the next project? Mm. <laughs> Don't know yet. That's a very popular question. We're working uh, yeah, on I, it. We're working right. on it. We're still, we're still like trying to catch our breath here, and uh, so you know, we'll we'll figure something out. And Cassie, has this, you know, made you look in other directions for new cookbooks? Uh, I wouldn't say other directions. I mean, we're always looking for something that's sort of interesting and new and fresh. And I think this was a really, really fun one. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, exhausting, but <laughs> but fun. So I just want to thank everybody for listening in, uh, everyone for participating. I'd love to give a shout out to all 31 restaurants, 10 producers, purveyors. Um, forgot to mention at the top of the show too, Acme Smokefish. Thank you for sponsoring. That's acmesmokefish.com. Uh, located in Greenpoint, it's been a mainstay in the New York's culinary landscape for over 55 years. Using old world recipes, Acme produces the finest smoked salmon. Whitefish, Sable, that discerning palates demand. For more info on Acme Blue Hill Bay, Ruby Bay products, acmesmokefish.com. You've been listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. I'm the photographer of the New Brooklyn Cookbook. Go out, check it out, flip through a couple pages, cook a couple dishes, hit a couple restaurants, get back to me. <laughs>